intentional for me is is having a mindset and a purpose and the fuel to follow through on your goals no matter what. It's being ultimately committed to achieving the outcome you want, but staying flexible in your approach. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 209 of the Intentional Growth Podcast. My guest today is Carl Allen. He's an entrepreneur and investor with over three decades of experience in the world of buying and selling companies. After working on Wall Street in the beginning of his career, Carl worked as a director of M&A for Hewlett Packard. And in his role, Carl went around buying companies for HP, which included his largest deal of $13.9 billion. 12 years ago, he made his decision to retire at the age of 37 after his son was born. However, Carl, like most entrepreneurs, mentally struggled handling the downtime after such a busy career. He only lasted three weeks in his retirement. This motivated him to take his experience from the world of M&A to buying and selling companies on his own. And he now has been part of over 340 deals. He also brings his expertise to his online program called the Dealmaker Wealth Society, where he has had over 5,500 participants learning about the deal process, where he trains future entrepreneurs to buy companies based on the things that he's learned. In today's episode, Carl gives us a look into the depth of his experience on buying and selling companies, educating and advising owners, and the best practices for conducting deals. This is important for anybody that's looking to buy, grow, and sell companies and wants to better understand the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm super excited to share this episode with you today because Carl clearly lays out the dynamic of the mid to lower market, which we define as the lower market is underneath 5 million in revenue, which is where 95% of privately held companies lie. And then the mid to lower market is between 5 million and 100 million in revenue. And he has tons of powerful stats. He talks about how 10,000 baby boomers retire every day and nearly 20% own small companies and small businesses. However, only one in 11 businesses will ever sell in the next 12 months. Carl's motivation is to help bridge the gap that comes from a lack of qualified buyers and the emotional attachment owners have to sell their companies. He describes how the intangible components of a deal and an owner's relationship with the company and their business can dramatically impact the company's value. As you're listening in, you're going to probably have a ton of questions about deal structures, valuations, how to buy a company, how to sell a company, all the different options. Obviously, go check out our Intentional Growth Digital Course. It's on the arcona.io website. We have an outline of the course, the curriculum, what you're gonna get out of it. If you want to join the virtual cohort that's coming up, we have a couple tickets left. We kept the cohort off at 10 entrepreneurs, so 10 people are gonna be going through the online course together. So we have four calls over the course of four weeks. Kickoff call is on September 15th. Check it out, arcona.io. And if you go to digital course, you can sign up for the cohort or the course there. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoyed this interview with Carl Allen. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. 
Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Carl, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. We were both talking about our uh, crazy travel schedules and then how it hasn't been over the last four months. And you are overseas and uh, your investments are over here in the US. But um, so I've been, uh, I I don't, it's so funny because like, uh, you're what there was one of the podcast companies that reach out for interviews that I get every day. And then all of a sudden you came out, I was like, Hey, actually a good one. And then like senior ads everywhere since the, I don't know if I clicked on the website. So you got some yeah, cool yeah. stuff, some cool stuff going on. And, uh, I think it'll benefit our audience in a lot of different ways. Cause we got people looking to grow and sell, looking to grow, sell and buy, but you know, all the different angles. And you had just mentioned that you've been on every side of the table. So Let's give the audience a little cliff note, uh, maybe from your the horse's mouth of you know how over the last thirty years some of the things that you've done and what you've seen. Yeah, so I, I started my career in nineteen ninety two. So I went to work for a Wall Street investment bank doing mergers and acquisitions. So that that was an awesome kind of grounding in terms of being a deal maker. So bought and sold businesses for Microsoft, IBM, GE, Boeing. Lockheed Martin, all, all the big names. So I specialized in the kind of technology and the industrial sector. So I did all that. And then I, I left them, did an MBA in Chicago um, in the mid-2000s. And then I ended up working for Hewlett-Packard as one of their directors of M&A. So I was flying all over the world, buying businesses for HP. You know, some, you know, the largest deal we did was $13.9 billion dollars. So it was really, really interesting stuff. And then my life massively changed 12 years ago. So it was the 1st of February, 2008. And I was in a boardroom in Moscow negotiating the purchase of a company. And my wife called me and she'd gone into labor four weeks early with our son. And I had to get myself back to the UK uh, for the birth. And I made it with a few minutes to spare. (laughs) <laughs> and my little guy, Josh, he came out and I'm cradling him in my arms. And I just thought, you know what? I'm done. I don't want to work for other people anymore. So I quit. I walked away from, you know, a million dollars worth of stock options. And and I retired and I, I was 37 years of age. This was back in 2008. And I, I was about three weeks into my retirement and, and I got really sick. I, I mentally just couldn't deal with the downtime going from 100 hours a week flying all over the world. <laughs> you know, boardrooms, deals, <clears throat> all that stuff. And and I sat out with my wife and I said, you know, what am I going to do? You know, I, I can afford to retire financially, but my brain's going to kind of turn to mush. So my, my wife said to me, I'll never forget. She said, well, here's the cool thing, Carl. You've only got one skill set, but you're one of the best in the world at it. You know how to buy and sell companies. She said, so why don't you become a business broker? So I thought, great idea. <laughs> so I set myself up, and and the first business that I found to sell, I just ended up buying it, because what happened was when I was sat down with the seller, they didn't want to sell to a trade buyer, they didn't want to sell to a competitor. They they were so proud of their brand and their legacy, and they were so fearful of their employees and being taken care of that they didn't want to sell to another company that would integrate the business and strip it down. They wanted to sell to an individual, and uh, 
And I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll buy the business from you. I'll, uh, I'll do a leveraged buyout, which is a, you know, a fancy Wall Street term. It's buying the business using other people's money. So I raised a bunch of financing on the strength of their balance sheet and their cash flows. I, I paid about half of the money at closing, agreed a selling note to pay the rest over time. And that was my first deal. Um, I sold it later to the employees after about three years, made some money out of that deal. You did an ESAB, the first one you did? Yeah. No shit. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So I, I, I built it. Uh, we doubled it in size. I sold it to the employees and the management team, seven figures, which was great. How many, how many years between when you bought it and when you sold it? Yeah, three years. Three years. No kidding, huh? Three years, but after the first kind of month of being in the business at quite a lot, uh, I was only in there maybe an hour a week. You know, I, I, I kind of developed the perfect balance as an owner investor. So not having to be in my business every day. So I was working kind of on the business, took some of the lead in the strategic work, but I let the management team and the employees basically run the business, drive the bus kind of day to day. So that sent me on a journey then of buying other businesses and targeting kind of owner managers that didn't want to sell out to trade buyers, wanted to sell to individuals that would keep the name, keep the brand, protect the legacy, protect the employees. So I kind of went through that process, uh, bought a bunch of businesses. Some worked out really, really well. Some unfortunately didn't. Some small deals, some really large deals, like $20, 25000000 million deals. And then about uh, three years ago, I was starting to get really kind of inundated by people that wanted me to teach them how to do this, wanted me to teach them the art and science of deal-making, you know, how to develop a deal-making mindset, how to build relationships, how to find deals, how to close them, how to raise capital, and then how to how to grow and scale and optimize a business once they bought it. So I, um, I decided to build an online program, an online system, um, which has gone really, really well today. We have over 5,500 people in that program, primarily on the buy side. Some of them are entrepreneurs that want to buy a business rather than starting a business. Obviously, I think there's a lot of benefits in buying versus starting. And then we're also coaching and mentoring a lot of existing business owners that they, they want to radically scale their business. And instead of doing it hustling customer by customer, they're buying other businesses as a way to scale and then combining them really synergistically with the business that they already have. So, so that, that's what we do. And, and you know, because I come from a place of giving, you know, I, I probably talk to... 20, 25 sellers a week. And most of the businesses, you know, I have no interest in buying. They're not the right fit for me. But I end up coaching them on really how to sell their business, how to separate themselves from the day-to-day operation so that they actually can sell the business to somebody Sounds else. Sounds like we need to partner up. I got the size of uh, the sell side package and education teed up and you got the buy side. Yeah. Carl, how many, how many companies did you uh, invest and buy and sell, or like you know, or actually go through the the process with prior to to launching the education a few years ago. Yeah, so I I've done I I've been party to well over three hundred deals, um, close to about three hundred and forty deals that that I've been party to. In in terms of me personally buying and then selling, probably around twenty five to thirty from twenty twelve 
up until the current day, because obviously I'm still doing deals. I still own a bunch of different businesses in different sectors, different countries. I do that through my private equity firm. So I, I have a PE firm in, in the US called Prox Capital with some partners. And we're, uh, you know, we're doing deals all the time. We're, we're about to close uh, on a couple of other transactions. Uh, one's a construction company. The other is, uh, is a HVAC uh, business. So one's in the US, one's in the UK. So still very, very active. So I'm one of those rare entrepreneurs that eats my own cooking. That's awesome. So there's so many ways I want to I want to kind of go with this because from the there's a I'll just kind of put up a couple of pins in there and we get, if we can remember to go back to them is like the size of the marketplace and when you think about like the deal sizes I want to kind of because I think the deal sizes the marketplace the market opportunities also impact the types of financing and the types of like yeah. structures which also I think lends opportunities yeah. to what you and I are talking about and so like. The, one of the stats that I have like gravitated to, Carl, over the last six years since I started doing this is this U.S. Census Bureau study that said that 95% of companies underneath are, are underneath $5 million in revenue in the U.S., yeah. which is like out of the privately held companies that have employees, there's only $6 million of them, which puts it at like 56 or $5.6 million that are underneath that. So all the private equity firms that I end up, you know, have been on the show or we interact with, it's like, hey, have you seen this two million in EBITDA company that's perfectly, you know, sustainable that no one knows about that you can come in and buy? And it's like, well, it's going to be a little bit more work to find that. Or, but then you get into the lower market, and there's this like drastic difference of okay, you have a three million revenue company, owner operated, they haven't separated ownership versus their W two pay, which you know you get into this deal structure and the size of these of it's mainly SBA loans or seller financing, or they sell to a third party. And there's just so few options and the creative deal structures and all the things that you talked about, ESOPs, private equity, aren't available to 95% of business owners or buyers or sellers. So there's this weird, I can tell you got something to say about it. Yeah. So, so you're right. The, the data is incredible. And you know, we, we focus primarily on businesses between kind of the one and five million revenue mark. Sometimes we'll go down to half a million dollars. If you go below a million or kind of half a million worst case, you tend to find that the business owner, you know, doesn't really have a business. They, they just have a job in, mm -hmm. in their own business and all the processes are in their head, all the customer relationships are with the owner personally. And you buy a business like that, all the goodwill evaporates as soon as the seller um, cashes the check and, and kind of leaves the building. And then what we found is when you go over 5 million and, and 10 million in, in other cases, but, but kind of when, when you get into really an eight-figure revenue business, there, there's so much more competition out there. Buyers can come from trade or private equity. You've obviously got sellers who have really optimized their business. They've got management teams. They've got systems and processes. So they have separated themselves. And what I found at that level is sellers are a lot less concerned about the intangibles. They're a lot less concerned about employee retention, brand, legacy, continuation of, of, of their baby. So we focus on that one to five million range. And what's amazing is, you know, when you talk to a seller in that space, whether they've owned the business 10 years, 20 years, or even longer, they've spent more time in that business during that time than they have with their own family. And it's like they're selling their baby. Mm -hmm. and, um, 
And we, we've modeled this extensively over the past five years. And we've come out that 79% of sellers in the one to five million range value the intangibles a lot more than the tangible cash that they're going to receive. Yeah, they want some money for all their hard work, but they're prepared to be a lot more flexible and creative on the structuring of the deal because they appreciate that as buyers, we're going to be able to kind of cherish the legacy and the employees that we actually have. The other 20, 21%, sure, they just want to sell. Uh, they just want to cash in. And, and that's completely fine. But the market data is crazy that there's over 2.4 million businesses for sale today in the US. Most of those are driven by baby boomers. The, you've got 10,000 boomers retiring every day. Uh, nearly 20% own small businesses. And only one in 11 businesses will sell within the next 12 months. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that most people that want to sell their business, they've never been through it before. They're not being professionally advised. They don't know how to do it. And then secondly, there's a massive lack of qualified buyers that know how to do deals and know how to get the capital that's required to be able to structure a deal and close it. And that that's one of the that's what's driving me today. Because you know, somebody asked me yesterday, I, I was on a TV show, somebody asked me yesterday, but why why do you do what you do? You've made all this money, you're doing all these deals. Why are you coaching and mentoring these people on the buy side and on the sell side? It's because I, you know, I really care about there's a massive problem in this industry. You know, the broker market is, is largely unregulated. I, I just really feel for the millions of sellers out there that can't sell their businesses. These are, in a lot of cases, really good businesses. They're being very poorly advised, and they they just need the, the kind of the skills and the tools to know how to put a deal together. I'm like almost jumping out of my chair because I just want to be like shaking the pom poms of what you said right now. I mean, it's it, it is super crazy. I totally agree with you because, like, you know. It's interesting when you get up to the like the higher uh, revenue market like that you're talking about like you've got tons of options of capital structures, ESOPs, raising some money, private equity, earnouts, like the, the, how creative you can get. First of all, really skilled advisors gravitate there because there's more money there. So then you have like this almost retail versus wholesale, almost back like the stock market bro- like brokerage world 30 years ago, right? Like that's, and I don't know that if you got a correlation between those two, but now like, and like literally you have like this real estate market of the business brokers that ha- are now responsible for 95% of the companies where you have like, if you think about like the size companies that you talked about too, you could have an $8 million revenue company that's doing... 800 to a million in, in, in EBITDA that gets a listing, literally a listing for their 50 employees. Then they go, wait a second, this is only worth 3X or 4X because they haven't done anything. And then they pay down the tax, they pay down the debt, and they walk away with 700 grand. Yet the person working at Target for 30 years is going to retire with 2.4 million. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's like... Crazy. It is crazy. So what are your thoughts? Like, So given the fact that we kind of set the groundwork and we had an agreement of this and like... And because we help people buy and sell too from the from the fractional CFO and the educational perspective, so we we play in the same marketplace, but from a different lens. And but I think we can validate almost everything you said. So then you say, okay, well, I see a lot of, and I'm curious because like from the volume of people that I talk to, I do see more buyers that are happening. I agree that there's an unqualified, there's a huge amount of unqualified like buyers 
for the wave that's coming over the next, and it's going to be a trickle with the boomers that as they go over the next five years, but like the SBA loan is like, there's so much restrict restrictions on the finance on the financing of this. Cause if you do an SBA loan, it's, you know, you could have 10 to 20% down, you know, it's got some good terms from the, from the term or from the duration, but you can't do earnouts. You can't do employment contracts. You like, and by the, when you actually model it out from the cash flow, Carl, it suffocates the business because of debt. So like, then you go, okay, well, all the creative things that you could do, the people that should buy the business who are might be 35 or 40 don't have $2 million in cash to put into the bit. So there's this weird void. And I don't yeah. know if that's some of the stuff you're trying to help or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm not a massive fan of the SBA. If, if I'm being honest, I, I think the SBA works better when you own an existing business. Uh, clearly mm-hmm. with the SBA, you need that, that personal cash injection, or you've got to go and partner with, with an investor who will, will sign the personal guarantee and, and give you that equity injection. But um, what, what I found modeling deals, you know, I, I've done an SBA deal, uh, I've done two actually, where you, because you're amortizing the loan over such a long period of time um, on the deals that I did, because you're able to pay the seller such a huge proportion of the deal at closing, mm-hmm. you can generally get a lower headline price. And then because you're amortizing that debt over a really long period of time, from a cash flow perspective, it really works. Most of the deals that we tend to get involved with, and, and most of the students that we're mentoring who are doing deals, they, they tend to do deals on, on a mix of asset-based or cash flow lending, some equity investment, either from their sales or they'll go and partner with, with an angel investor, uh, somebody that you know, can add a lot of value to the deal and the business once they've acquired it. And then also with, with seller financing. Now, now seller financing is always a, a tricky subject because you, you've got to build really solid relationships. You, you, it's like walking up to a girl in a bar and asking her to marry you. You know, it's never going to work. You, you know, you've got to date that person and, and, and spend a lot of quality time with that person. And it's the same in deals. So the strength of the relationship you've built and the credibility and, and, and that you get the seller to know you, like you, and trust you, then it opens up lots of opportunities for kind of seller financing. And you'll always have the kind of the security question. Sometimes a seller might want you to personally guarantee that note. Sometimes they might want to claw back on the equity if you don't pay. You know, there's a lot of things around that. But but for me, what what I figured out versus when I was on Wall Street, when I was on Wall Street, M&A was all about financial engineering. Mm-hmm. When you're doing deals in the kind of small and medium space, these one to $5 million deals, it's about psychology and it's about relationships. You know, I've, I've looked at businesses, you know, I've, I've looked at two identical businesses almost in the same sector, did the same thing, same financial profile, identical businesses. One was owned by a 35-year-old entrepreneur, really having a lot of fun, enjoying life. The other was owned by a 60-year-old retiree, sick, highly demotivated, but still a great business. You can buy the latter business for you know, two to two and a half times multiple and, and pay 25% down. The first guy, you might want 5x, 6x. Hey, you might even want 10x for his business and, and want most of that money at, at closing. So that was the big step change for me when I got into this in the kind of small to medium market. It's just how much this game is about psychology and relationships. When, when you're a Wall Street guy and you're doing billion-dollar deals, it's not about those things. It's about 
It's about the financial engineering. But it's easy because everybody when at that t- at that point are financial engineers, right? Buyers and sellers, everybody's doing financial engineering. That is the sport. And then the business is just the mechanism to do the financial engineering where, you know, you get into the lower place. And I mean, it's truly people that started as tradesmen. I saw on your YouTube and you're holding up the e-myth, right? People that started out doing a job, right? And like, like I've interviewed hundreds of people and our model is about like, you know, the business is a derivative of the, of the owner's personality for the most part, who they chose to hire, the clients that they chose to work with, the suppliers they chose to work with, everybody that their, their whole ecosystem is kind of like a reflection of them as a person. And like, and it's like, I mean, the, the, the psychology is, I mean, it's actually science. Like they can show that it's like, Hey, this is like almost decoupling your identity from that ecosystem and being, you have to be financially rewarded for it. And I see like, so it's funny. Cause I don't know if you, if you, if you saw our five principles, but the first one starts with what the hell do you want? You have to start with that. And then the next one is okay. What are your financial targets? Because, you know, I think there are situations where like the business owner can't sell like you, by the time they run the net proceeds, if they even know what that means, they're going, I can't retire. And especially if they do an SBA deal and they get kicked out and they can't be, you know, they can't have a job. They're like, I can't literally afford it, even though I want to. So you kind of have to have both those in balance. I mean, how do you, how do you see that happening as you look at these deals that you've looked at? How are some of those, those two worlds getting melded together to actually solve the problem? Yeah. So on, on the SBA side, there are ways around that. You, you, you can retain the, uh, the previous owner as a consultant. The SBA limits you initially for the first 12 months, but you know I don't think they ever check that you can keep rolling those contracts forward. And, and what you can then do with that is <clears throat> almost give them a, a kind of pseudo earnout where you, on the consulting agreement, you can give them points of revenue, you know, over above a certain amount or points of profit over and above a certain amount. So that, that's a way to kind of hack an earnout into an SBA deal. But, but clearly, what one of the things with 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 sellers and when you know when I look at a business and I think well you know I'm not going to buy it you know there's no way that the seller is going to get what they need I'll I'll actually coach them on on how to grow and improve that business so they they can sell it and I'll coach them on on really three things so first of all is how how they separate themselves you know from the business what one of the number one reasons why businesses don't sell is is what I said before, all the goodwill is going to evaporate as soon as they leave. You know, for somebody to sell a business, they they've got to extricate themselves from from driving the bus. They they've got to have a team and processes in place that are going to run that business. And and I ask the question when I every teller I talk to, I say to them, you know, if you didn't go into your business for thirty days and you didn't have any phone calls, any emails, you were marooned on a desert island, what would happen to your business? And most of the time, they're in shock. They're like, well, it would die. It would die within a week. Okay, well, then no one's going to buy your business. <laughs> Why would they? No one's going to buy the, your business unless it's a trade buyer that's basically buying your customer base. Because they know how to do it. Yeah, your, your product or service range. And they're just going to plug it in to what you have already and, and then let everything else go. And, but most sellers don't want that. You know, they, they don't want that. I, I bought a company a couple of years ago. It was, it was, a, it was a media business in California in Burbank. Uh, I remember sitting down with a seller and, and I said to her, you know, to your point, I said, you know, what do you want? You know, what, 
what does the perfect deal look like for you? And she said, well, I've got three requirements. She said, the first one is you can't change the name of the business and you can't change the logo. Because my husband started this business in 1985 and we're so proud of this logo and this name. So if you buy it, you can't change it. I went, okay. She said, number two, you can't fire anybody. You buy this business, you've got to keep the employees. If they want to leave of their own accord, that's fine. But I don't want you buying it and then stripping people out. You know, well, like a family, you've got to take care of them. She said, I want that written into the agreement. I said, okay. She said, and the third point, she said, I, I want enough money at closing to pay my closing costs um, and to go on a, on a short vacation. And then I, I want um, essentially $6,000 a month for the next two years. And I said, perfect. Right. I said, so you probably need 50 grand down and six grand a month. She said, well, well, no, I'm thinking more around kind of 25. She said, but I'll just take the money out of the business. I went, okay, great. So you take 25 grand out of the business at closing. That covers your costs and you can go on a vacation. I'll just pay you $6,000 a month for two years. She went, really? You do that? I said, of course I would. Yeah, that's fine. Which meant I bought that business and I didn't have to spend any of my own money. I used the business's own resources and its ability to generate cash flow. So I did that deal. And the first thing I thought is, well, I don't want to run this thing. So I went and found um, a smaller version of this company. And, I, and I, I called Paul, the CEO. I said, look, buddy, I said, I'm dragooning you to be the CEO of my new business. Um, we're going to park your existing business into it. And I'm going to give you 40% of the equity. And then after two years, I'll sell it to you. I'll sell. Once I've paid the seller off of the original deal, I'll sell you the other 60%. And we've just done that deal. So he did it. So we came in, we grew that business, we integrated his business into it. Um, he just bought me, just bought my 60% equity. So, so Carl, I, like in, I think that that is, you could do that so many times because by the time, and I don't want to kind of give you a couple of my insights that I've learned over the years of why I think some of these challenges arise is like, and then the, curious and what your perspective is on it is like, so as these business owners grow like this, and then they all, they, they, there's almost like this plateau that I've seen where it's like, finally, they can make their six figure income for the year. And it, and they don't know anything about ownership versus W2 management role, like payroll, like you're, you're getting paid for being the CEO, right? So that, that hundred grand is from that. But then it's like this blender of distributions. Should I pay my taxes? Do I get my salary? Because of the financial like clutterness of it. So what happens is it's like this, and then there's 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 this stickiness at that, which could be like a couple million in revenue or whatever it might be. And so like when I when I see these problems of like so like if that problem happens and then that that situation arises and that you just described, it's like please take this job, this big, huge income stream, and just let me decouple it. And I see it like if someone understood like, hey, they understood what you and I just discussed. They're like, well, they, they might be able to free themselves without potentially selling it yet and grow it a little bit more than sell. Or like, But the challenge that I see is that they haven't gotten to the point where they can afford to reinvest because they're, 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 they're like infused with that six-figure cash flow check. 
Have you seen that? Is like, is that accurate, or what's your thoughts on like? Yeah, so that that's that's pretty common. That that that's pretty common. But but theoretically, you know, for, for an owner of a business that's only making a hundred thousand dollars a year in SDE, then you know they they've either got a half a million dollar business with a twenty percent margin, or they're just cracking seven figures, um, and they're making ten percent. What one of the challenges um, outside of the kind of owner versus operator conundrum that we talked about before. One of the other challenges that I see an awful lot with the vast majority of businesses that I speak to is they, they don't know how to scale. They don't even want to scale. They The bulk of their revenues are coming from repeat customers and, and word of mouth referrals. And don't get me wrong, I love those businesses because they're almost on autopilot. And if they've got loads of referrals and repeat customers, they, they have a band of raving fans. But most business owners that I come across, and you know, most of the baby boomers, they haven't really kind of <clears throat> adopted a lot of the new ways to do marketing. So they might not have any direct salespeople. They're not leveraging social media. They don't go to events. You know, they're not actively going out there to generate new leads and convert those leads in, into new customers. And, and a lot of the things that I see as well is a lot of these business owners, they're bending over backwards for customers. Everything's bespoke. So they can't scale because they've got, you know, really kind of... Saturday morning phone calls from customers. Yeah, People-dependent businesses, it's not a repeatable product or service that can scale. And you just you build a sales funnel, you figure out what your conversion metrics are, you, you buy media or you advertise and you just convert and you scale and you scale. You've got that awesome, repeatable process. And, and it's so rare to kind of see that. And, but those are the businesses that sell for five, six, seven, ten times profit, whether it's cash flow, SDE, EBITDA, doesn't matter. Um, but 95% of the businesses in the market and, and all, most of the ones I ever speak to will see, you know, they're not in that place. They're not in that place. But but what's really interesting to kind of plug into this is the, the, the number one exit strategy in the United States for a small business owner is actually to close the doors and turn off the lights. And that devastates me. That's one of the things that drives me. 595,000 businesses in 2019 closed the doors and turned off the lights because... And, and most of these were, were good businesses. They weren't bankrupt. You know, they, they hadn't filed for bankruptcy. It's just that the, the seller wanted to sell, didn't know how to do it, couldn't find the right buyer. So they, they basically liquidated their balance sheet. You know, they cashed in all their assets. They paid down all the liabilities. And then they, they just took the shareholder well, funds. Isn't it just sad? I mean, like, well, for them, for the opportunity, for the customers, for like, I mean... And, and Carl, you 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 layer on once the PPP rolls its way through the system, and like the like the the new economy actually reconciles with what's going on, and like I'm like it's there needs to be a way to fix this. I mean, like because I agree with you. I mean, it's super sad, and yeah, it's a you know going back to what you're saying is like you know when you talk about scaling and and like trying to get out of this, and like I I also think like the example that you talked about about you know, the cash flow and not knowing how to scale and the kind of the whole blender. I've seen this, even the layer up the market in the mid market of, you know, business owners who are in the, you call it a 
couple million bucks where they they get they get used to those distributions. But by the time they value the company and run their net proceeds, they're living half a million to eight hundred thousand dollar lifestyle. It's just the same problem. It's just another zero. It's yeah. just. Is it, um, when you think about like, I'm curious as you went from like your M&A world of financial engineering to this, how much of these issues become financial education problems from the owners of understanding like, yeah, they want to do these things, but they don't know how to look through the windshield and understand how to get there. Yeah. So I think it is a problem. Uh, and I think what, one of the, one of the really interesting things is that for most business owners, they, they've never been to this before. So this, this is technically their first deal. 90% of business owners that sell actually founded the business. They didn't buy it. So they've never been through a, a deal process. And they, they lack the psychology and the financial chops to be able to, to do the deal. And, and a lot of them, they're poorly advised. Uh, I think partly that is their own fault, that they're not prepared to pay their lawyer or their CPA or their tax advisor, you know, to really navigate them and guide them through the transaction. So I, I think that, that that's a major problem. And, and just that, that lack of advice and handholding, the number of businesses I've bought where I've had to hold the hand of the seller through the transaction and almost kind of like pseudo advise them. I'm saying, look, buddy, you know, I'm, I'm buying your business. I could be anybody. You've got to get independent advice. No, I trust you. you. You know, you're really smart. You've been doing this for a long time, and and you know, I, I know, I know you're going to do the right thing by me. I'm like, I am, but dude, you've got to get get a lawyer on board and go and see your advisor on the tax perspective and have him walk you through, you know, the, the best way to structure this from your perspective, so you're maximizing the dollars that are gonna they're gonna stay in your jeans and they're not going to go to the IRS or our equivalent in the UK and. That that's a big part of building the relationship, but 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 for me, there, there's generally a very poor level of advice given to you know small and medium businesses. You know, when you become a ten million dollar business, and you you know you everybody wants you. You're on the cover of magazines, and <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you, when when you're at ten million dollars as a business, and you're cranking one to two million dollars in free cash flow, you know everybody wants to advise you, and, and you can obviously afford. <laughs> I like I, the, my analogy I've given before, Carlos. It's like you know that like the picture of like the the big whale, the great white whale, and like the little minnows that kind of flow in. It's like you have the cash flow, and then all of a sudden they get all the people that are latching onto that cash flow, and it's not as not as viable for the advisors or advice to go downstream. And like, so it's interesting because like. You've you've kind of been over the last few years by, uh, building this process and solution from getting buyers educated to do this because yeah. they at once they thought that the capital was a problem. Now that you're kind of educated, I want to I want to get into that and like how you're educating them on the the to structure the deal. But for like for the sellers, it's interesting because like after my dad and I sold in 2014 went through the whole like learning experience and, you know, a couple hundred podcast interviews in. And I'm like, I've been trying to solve the problem for the business owner that currently owns it to like essentially shift their mindset and say, okay, like how did it, how to educate this? I went through renaming this Carl, because it was like growth and exit and people like exit freaks everybody out. So we renamed it the intentional growth framework to grow intention, but it's educating them on this. And it's, it's like, I've like trying to find how to inject at the right moment when they're open to learning about this and getting their head out of their business is just, honestly, it's probably one of the most difficult things that I've ever done in my life is just trying to figure out how to do it before they're too burnt out. Yeah. So 
you you've really hit the nail on the head there. And, and I think a lot of the the challenges are that you know most business owners they're working in their business, not on their business. So they don't have the time, they don't have the mental real estate available to really kind of think through you know what that process looks like in in terms of a transaction, in terms of the financing, in terms of the psychology. You know the the emotions. That, that sellers go through when they sell a business, especially for the first time. It, it's up there with, with getting married and buying real estate. You know, we all remember the first house we bought, how stressful it is. We all remember when we get married or we have kids, just how emotionally draining those, those things are. And, and I, I, think, I think selling your company is, is way, way, way up there. And, and most sellers, they're just not geared up to go through it properly. And I think a lot of them, they haven't even really figured out, you know, what are they going to do when they come out of the transaction? If they successfully close and, you know, they, they, they bank a significant check at closing, it's like, you know, what are they going to do? And it was like me back in 2008, whilst I hadn't sold a business, I cashed out of HP and I, I had, you know, I had some money in the bank and, you know, didn't have a financial worry, but... Three weeks in, I was mentally ill. I, I couldn't function. I needed to get back in the game and do something with my life. I still had too much to give. And, and, and a lot of the sellers, you know, I, I bought a business once uh, off a gentleman. But one of the deal origination techniques that, that I teach my entrepreneurs is, is what I call the direct approach. So as you know, a lot of deals get listed through business brokers. And, and obviously, you can find deals through your network and various things. But what, one of the things that I teach as well is, you know, build a list of businesses you like, you know, go to Info USA or Hoover's and, you know, pull a list. Let's say you wanted to buy an engineering company within 50 miles of Chicago. You know, you can get that, get that data quite quickly and you, you can write to the sellers in a, a very confidential way and, and, and inquire as to whether they want to sell their business and you're building rapport in that, in that document. And, 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 and I still do that today. And so I, I, I sent some letters out. This was, gosh, 20, 2013, I think. And um, I was looking in the engineering space at the time. And uh, this guy called me the following day. And he's like, got your letter, very interested. He said, but I need to see you today. He said, I, I'm, if I don't sell this business by Friday, I'm going to close it down. I'm like, really? He said, look, come get in your car, come see me. So I got in my car. I drove like 90 minutes, went to see him. And I went into his office and the guy was a wreck. And I'm like, Jeff, what's the matter? He said, well, I just found out last night that uh, my wife's got um, advanced cancer and she's going to be gone within the next six weeks. And I do not want to be in this business every day. I got to be with her. I've, I've neglected her for years. I've been running this thing. None of the people in my business are capable of taking it over. So if you want it, you know, buy it off me for a pound give me a share of the revenue splits or give me a share of the profits if you want, uh, but take it on. You got to do it now. So he calls his lawyer. His lawyer comes in, gives me a contract. I buys the business there and then, um, and he leaves. So three months later, you know, I've, I've installed a GM. We've started to grow this thing. He calls me up and obviously his wife had, had sadly passed. And he's like, I don't know what to do with my life. He said, can I come back and work for you? I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Why don't you come back? I'll give you half of the business back and let's run it together. So we did. So we came back, we ran it for two more years, then we sold it. And he was able to retire then with, with a chunk of change 
to you know to get on with his life. But he if, if he he couldn't have sat at home after his wife passed and uh, and done nothing. He he needed to come back. That business had been his life for twenty two years, and you know he needed to come back and, and get back involved. So. Well, it's, inter- it's interesting you bring it up in that context, Carl, because like as we have built our education platform with intentional growth principles, like understanding what you want and then understanding your financial targets and essentially understanding the value of the business as it relates to your overall ongoing cash flow and your net worth and how it fits into that. Like again, could be breathing like you, for you and I, but a lot of these people, they don't understand it, but then they can make the decision to say, hey, I'm going to sell partial of it, you know, segmenting the ownership from the management role and say, I'm going to sell some or all of it. What it could be an ESOP, could be to to someone like you, could be a seller, could be, or it could be anything, but they're choosing to stay in it. And that's going to impact how they want to structure the deal. Because like, I mean, you're so right. I don't know if you knew, but uh, before this, uh, the name of this podcast, I actually, the, the, the podcast was named life after business for three years. Wow. So yeah, I was like, like, cause it was the same thing. I want to, we're like, what the hell are we going to do? I mean, and you start to realize that most people, this is their passion and I'm not a golfer. Most business owners, you know, they, 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 it's I actually did a podcast recently about flow and how business is actually a psychological addiction to being able to actually engineer your optimal state of human yeah. being. Like, so it's like this, it's actually an addiction, I believe that. And like there's brain science out there that shows that if you get someone out of a business, they can't get back in the flow, you know, Sudoku and word puzzles and all that shit is not going to satisfy the rush that you got out of a business. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And, I, and I'm the same. You know, I, I, I sold my largest business last year to a big corporate in the US. And I, I could have, you know, completely retired and uh, my wife said to me, is that it? Are you done? I'm like, nah. <laughs> said, well, why not? So I'm, I'm 50 this year. And I said to my wife, look at Warren Buffett. Still works 60 hours a week. Look at him. He's like 80 something. I said, I probably won't work till I'm 80. I said, but I got another 10 more years because I don't have any hobbies. A- apart from working, being with my family and cycling, I don't do anything. I don't play golf. I don't do anything. So I don't know what I would do with my time. I, I I would get ill again, so I have to I have to keep kind of hustling. You know, this I've been doing this for twenty eight and a half years. There's there's no way I can give this up. So uh, you got to keep. Carl, going. Do you think it's because like I think about like because I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like I will literally be doing this till the day I die because it's so freaking fun. And like my business partner is sixty three, and they're like, well, what's Pat's final goal? I'm like, he's gonna be looking at a deal on the financials on his last breath. Like I totally believe that, but it's like, you know, and then people, it, it sounds, well, well, what's the right word? It sounds like we're doing things that are, that we're not advising because if we never want to sell, cause we're doing this and we're looking to, you know, expand our portfolio and things down the road, why would we convince other people? And it's like the whole point, I guess, of how I've tried to articulate it. I want to hear your, how you would describe this is, once you get into the world of M&A, it's kind of like the end result, right? Buying and selling companies is, it's financial related, it's economy related, it's people related. You could, you could throw a, a twist of conscious capitalism, you know, uh, capitalism in there, do ESA, like it's literally kind of like the end of it. So that becomes, like the analogy I've given is like in the E-Myth when um, Scott, was it, when uh, Gerber, not Scott Gerber, what is it? Michael, Michael Gerber. Gerber. Yeah, when he, when Michael Gerber explains that, 
it was like the business of McDonald's, not a restaurant. Like it's like a shift in mindset to say like, this is it, not the actual trade. I don't know. Am I saying that right? Like what's your thoughts? No, you are. Yeah. Yeah. McDonald's sells burgers, but it's not in the burger business, is it? It's in the, it's in the distribution and real estate business. Mm -hmm. Knowing what business you're in and what business you should be in it is very, very different. One, one of the best pieces of advice that I give to sellers uh, once they leave their business and they, they need that mental stimulation of staying in the game is to become an angel investor and, and partner up with entrepreneurs that are looking to go and achieve results that as the seller they've achieved and I either you know get equity in their businesses, either you know consulting for equity, so they're they're advising and partnering with them, you know, and instead of getting paid, they're they're getting a share of the business, or they they actually physically invest. And we advise a lot of our buyers to do that. So when you're buying a business, uh, if you lack some of the skills that are required to drive that business forward, or you maybe lack some of the strategic chops that you would need, and you need capital to close the deal, go and partner with an angel investor that a has got the money and b has got the life skills and the gray hair and the experiences that are A, going to add a lot of value to the deal and B, are going to add a lot of value to the business once you've acquired it. And whether they invest or they're just on your board of advisors, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. They're there as, as a value add and, and can really, really make a difference inside of that business. So I think for a lot of sellers, you know, I, I advise them to go down that route. And, and stay in the game and, and just give back and help other people and obviously, you know, make financial returns in most cases as a result of that. So as we're wrapping up here, I mean, you, you've built, so I want to give you some time to explain your, your educational material. And before you do that, Carl, you know, I think, cause I have a pretty good mix of our listeners that are sellers learning this stuff. Cause I think it's important for them to understand deal structure so they can actually have a good conversation and they can be more intentional with the people that they're, you know, choosing to sell to, but you know, maybe a little takeaway for sellers and buyers, you know, as, as they're going into this journey, like what to, yeah. to, to accomplish your goal of minimizing the amount of business that I got to shut doors. What kind of, what kind of advice would you give the listeners? Yeah. So, so let, let me give you my top three or four pieces of advice for sellers. First of all, so point number one is you have to separate yourself from the business. It's going to be very hard to sell your business if you are the business. So you, you, you've got to get out of your day-to-day operations. You've got to work on your business, not in your business, and make sure that you have a, a, a management team, even if it's one or two people, and a set of systems and processes that can be transferred to the buyer. So that's the first point. The second point is uh, get good advice. Make sure that you have you know, your CPA or tax advisor on standby, giving you the best advice, and you know, a really good lawyer, not, not the family lawyer down the street that does wills and divorces, you know, a, 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 a lawyer that's, uh, they could be small, but a lawyer that's got experience in the M&A space, knows how to do deals, knows how to negotiate, knows how to protect the seller in terms of warranties and indemnities and, and all those different things. And then the third thing is really think about the scale. So when, when you're selling the business, for any seller, you, you've got to think about, you know, there, there, are, there, are only three types of, there are only three types of buyer. So as a seller, you can sell to an individual, 
So it could be a management buyout from somebody within your business. It could be a management buy-in from an entrepreneur or somebody like me. Secondly, it could be a private equity firm where they're cashing you out for the majority of your ownership. You're staying in for a bit and then you sell out the rest or you sell into a trade buyer. And all those deals are different. You know, if you sell into an individual... I'd throw that on there, right? Yeah. Yeah. If if you're selling to individuals, you're going to get less money for your business because the individual doesn't really have any leverage. They don't have a... Uh, an existing business they can connect with to generate synergies. If you sell into a trade buyer, then obviously you get all those synergies and all that cross-selling. So a trade buyer is going to ultimately pay more money and they've got a lot more access to capital. But the risks of selling to trade buyers, they might rip the company up um, and just take what they want. And for some sellers, that's great. For most of them, from my experience, that's not. So those those are my best pieces of advice you know, to sellers. And, and obviously, to really scale a business and make it infinitely more valuable, before you sell it, go and buy another business and kind of bolt it into what you've already got. My best advice to buyers, whether they're individual or not, is, is number one, stay in your lane. You know, if, if you've never bought a business before, go and buy a business in an area that you know, you understand, you're passionate about, and you can add value to. So if you're a web designer, Go buy a web design firm or, or even an IT services company. Don't buy a gas station or a laundromat because you don't understand. <laughs> because just the, because it makes sense. <laughs> you know, yeah, it just, it just makes sense. Um, you know, and a, a, a lot of people, they come into my programs, they, they get deal heat. They, you know, they go to bizbuysell.com or they, they talk to someone in the network and they say, Carl, I've got this great deal. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a chemical processing business. I'm like, sure, but, but you're a sales guy for IBM. Um, <laughs> You know, why on earth would you want to buy? Yeah, but it's got great cash flow. Yeah, so, um, but, you know, you're going to, you're not going to matter any value to that business whatsoever. Go, you know, the 74,000 IT service companies for sale in the US, go buy one of those. You know, you can really add value. The seller's going to think you're super credible because you're from the space. You work for IBM. You can add so much value to that business. You've got a network you can plug in. You can scale that business. You might even do a roll-up. You can buy several and put them together. You know, do that. And they say, yeah, okay. So Versus spending the next 36 months understanding what polymers are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> it, it, it drives me crazy that, that people don't stay in their lane. And, and I think the other advice I give for, um, for buyers is, remember, it, it's more about psychology and relationships than it is numbers. You know, numbers are important. Obviously, you've got to value the business. You've got to structure the deal. You've got to make sure that the business is going to throw off enough cash flow to service the deal that you're doing. But that's the mechanics. You don't even get there if, if you haven't really figured out the seller's psychology and you haven't really built the strength of relationships that you need, both with the seller and your advisors and the financiers. And again, if you're buying in your space, that is so much easier. You know, if you're if you're the IBM guy and you go and sit down with the chemical business owner, imagine that conversation. That's not going to be very interesting, is it? <laughs> you know, if, if you're staying in your lane, wow. You know, you yeah. you, you can really uh, really have some magic moments in 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 a deal like that. So, so that, one last question. Like, one last yeah. question that I want you to give your place of where to find the course and the material and everything is: oh. What does the word intentional mean for you? Intentional for me is is having a mindset and a purpose and the fuel 
to follow through on your goals no matter what. It's being ultimately committed to achieving the outcome you want, but staying flexible in your approach. Wow. I think I might have to like actually transcribe that and put that on the website. <laughs> so what's the best place to get best place to get in touch with you and your materials? Great. So we we've got some free training that we're um, that we're letting people have access to just to see whether buying businesses is uh, is of interest to them. So if they go to trainwithcarl.com forward slash intentional, they they can download <laughs> that training, go through it. And then for people that want to take it further and want to join one of our programs, uh, there'll be lots of opportunities uh, to do that as well. But first point is, you know, go through that free training. If it's for you, then then great. We uh, will welcome you into uh, one of our training programs. Carl, I had an absolute blast. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, buddy. Great, great to be here. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. Loved going back and forth with Carl. He totally gets it. And he's trying to solve the same problem in the marketplace that I believe that Pat and I are in, which is education. We need more willing buyers and educated buyers, and we need more entrepreneurs that are educated on the world of valuation, value growth, and exits. So that way we we can have a true trade in value and energy and effort in order to save all the entrepreneurs and businesses that are currently around right now. If you're a future buyer, check out Carl's course. Awesome stuff. You'll learn a lot about how to buy and how to structure the the purchase of a business. If you are a current business owner and you want to know more about this stuff, check out our intentional growth course. It is literally built for the challenges that Carl and I described for the last hour. You're going to learn valuations, how to structure deals, understanding all your exits, how the options work. And the point of understanding all this stuff is so that way you can design your future path to grow value, giving yourself more choices. The only way to understand all this is to educate yourself. Check out the digital course or check out our virtual cohort that's coming up in September. With that being said, I hope you enjoyed the episode and I will see you next week.